Welcome to Pod Bless Canada, McDonald Laurier Institute's premier podcast. My name is Shuvaloy Majumdar, and I'm a Monk Senior Fellow for Foreign Policy here at the Institute. I'm ecstatic to be joined today by Dr. Stephen Blank, Senior Fellow at the American Foreign Policy Council in Washington, D.C., and former Professor of Russian National Security Affairs at the U.S. Army War College. Currently, he's authoring a book with us at the McDonald Laurie Institute on the Arctic and international security. So, Dr. Blank, welcome and thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk to you about Russia. You're one of the North American continent's most accomplished Russia scholars. It's going to be a fun conversation. Well, I certainly hope so. Well, I want to start by unpacking and deconstructing what is contemporary Russia. But what a better launching pad to ask this question than the events of the G7 that occurred just this last weekend uh, in Quebec, where President Donald Trump came just before he arrived to the G7. He said to the world, Russia should be at the G7. We should restore the G8. We should negotiate with them. What do you say to that? Russia should not be a member of the G8. While it would be, in principle, a good idea to have negotiations with Russia, that cuts both ways. Why shouldn't Russia be a member of the G8? The G8 is, first of all, an organization that was set up to represent the seven largest economies of the world going back to the 1970s and coordinate international economic policy. Tell us about the 70s. What was happening in that? That was in response to the oil shocks of the 1970s, which threw the world economy into a a tailspin and created major disturbances. And it was felt by the members of the G7, starting with President Ford, and particularly uh, President uh, Giscard d'Estaing of France at the time, that it was necessary to have some mechanism of coordination. And they started meeting, I think the first meeting was in Martinique, French West Indies. Mm -hmm. The incentive to add anyone to this organization today, if it's based on economics, would be first of all to add China because of the tremendous weight of China in the global economy. And I think the necessity of integrating China into international economic and political mechanisms. Alternatively, if it's an association of the seven greatest democracies, a huge distinction, which is a different and huge distinction from what we were talking about, then the other partner you'd want to invite is India. Russia qualifies on neither account. And furthermore, Russia is not only in a violation of having invaded Ukraine, it's in violation of every arms control agreement that it signed in the last 30 years. Every last one? Every one. I would even say it's in violation of the New Star Treaty, if you do the numbers. They're building more nuclear weapons. There are 23 nuclear weapons programs currently underway in Russia. Short range, intermediate range, long range, naval, ground, and air. Were they ever sincere about any of those treaties that they signed? Well, I have to assume they were sincere at the time. Hmm. What changed? There was a change from Medvedev to Putin. There was a change in the way the Russians looked at international affairs and the decisive domestic influence of the anti-Western, anti-American, pro-military point of view. Mm -hmm. And I think that's in the last eight to 10 years. And would you say that kind of set the table for this war between the West and Russia? Is that How did things denigrate from when in 2002, Vladimir Putin was welcomed in Kananaskis as the representative of a country with a rising economy? to 15, 16 years later, Russia invading Ukraine? Well, the cutoff point, in my view, is not 2008, it's 2004 5. Why? There is a statement by the Russian defense minister, Sergei Ivanov, in early 2005, which was only published in 2014, which is suggestive. 
that Russia really finds itself in a state of war with the West, not a shooting war, and there is no shooting war except Ukraine, and that this war is a political war launched by forces that want to undermine Russia's system of government, by which he means both autocratic and imperial pretensions to restoring Russia as a great global power. That has been the operating principle under which the Russian government has operated for the last 13 to 15 years. As a matter of fact, in 2001 and 2002, the basis for the current defense policy was laid when they instituted the reform of defense industry then, hmm. not 10 years ago, and but 16, 17 years ago, at a time when they were being welcomed in the West due to 9-11. So the roots of this policy and of this autocratic imperial formation go very deep and are very far back. Exactly when would you say it happened? Would it have happened when Vladimir Putin came into power? Would it have preceded him a little bit at the end of the Soviet empire? At what point was Russia actually sincere about integrating with the West? I would say they were sincere about integrating with the West in the early 90s. It changed after 93, 94. The Russians will tell you it's because of NATO enlargement. I think it's because of the destruction of Russian democracy, which begins in 93 with the coup in Moscow, an attempted coup against Yeltsin. Yeltsin suppresses it and begins gradually to snuff out democratic institutions and procedures. Didn't fully do that. Putin carries it all the way forward afterwards. But already by 95, they're putting more pressure on the Baltic states. Their foreign policy is becoming more and more antagonistic. Already in 92, 93, they're claiming they ought to have a right to uh, police the former Soviet Union and that there's a great power conflict over the Eurasia taking place. So this precedes Putin. This is incredible. This is almost to the core of Russian identity. Well, the core of Russian identity, as far as the elites are concerned today, is that Russia is an autocratic imperial great power. They've never known anything but that. They can't conceive of a state that is anything but an empire. And they believe that if Russia is not an autocracy, an empire, and the two go together, then it will fall apart and be nothing. That's, and that's their terminology, not mine. That's fascinating. It seems like that Russia was never re really able to overcome or move beyond its czarist identity, even despite the decades of communism in between. Well, the Soviets add or transform the czarist identity and add their own unique ideological point of view to that. But a lot of czarist thinking and practice is carried over, and Putin has brought a lot of it back. Interesting. Fascinating world. Um, in the contemporary world in which we live, you've said at the panel today that you were participating with at the McDonald laurie Institute about the multidimensional threat that Russia presents. Can you unpack that a little bit for me and for our audience? Like, What do you mean by that? What is a multidimensional threat? When I worked for the Army, we had an acronym called the DIME. As in like a dime, nickel, dime, right. a quarter. Got exactly. It. And it, it refers to the instruments of power, diplomacy, information, military, and economic power. Mm -hmm. Russia's offensive against the West, and it's a global offensive. We see it in Latin America. We even see it in Africa. We see it in the Middle East, Europe, and of course, the interference in the U.S. elections, as well as in European elections, and, and that's continuing takes the form of a multidimensional attempt to coerce the West into accepting Russia on Russia's terms. And therefore, they are using diplomacy, information, and their understanding of information warfare is not the Western information warfare definition, but their own, which is a comprehensive attempt to use information across all media and, and all boundaries and in the military. They're using military power by the conventional and nuclear buildup that we see taking place inside Russia. And of course, they're using economic weapons such as energy, the use of Russian money and Russian business to subvert 
and corrupt Western political, economic, and financial institutions and media. Organized crime plays a big role here also because Russian organized crime is actually an arm of state policy and not something detached from the state. So you're not saying that organized crime is actually an element of the Russian statecraft? Well, I put it this way, according to the late Karen DeWisher, essentially that the Russian state is an organized crime operation. Russian state is the Russian crime. state is an organized criminal operation. Incredible. Yes, and what scholars will call organized crime is part of it. For example, if uh, for those members of the audience who read Spanish, the Spanish public prosecutor Jose Grinda brought several cases against Russian organized crime syndicates and figures in Spain. It's a 450-page report wow. detailing not only what they're doing in Spain and the rest of Europe, but their connections to government figures back in Moscow and St. Petersburg. Well, what an incredible labyrinth of a network of imperial autocratic actors in the contemporary age. Well, that's part of what we see. We see this now with these proxy groups like the Wagner paramilitary group, which is active in the Middle East and Africa. These mercenaries who went into the Donbass and Crimea were all acting on behalf of the Russian state. Hacker groups, trolls, all kinds of paramilitary groups, thousands of people involved one way or another in it to give the Russian state either plausible deniability or to shift the financial burden onto other actors than the state. But they are all operating on the state direction. In the Donbass and in Syria, we've seen immeasurable numbers of Russian lives that have been lost as a result of the direction of their state to go fight these asymmetric wars without cover of a national army. Uh, what do you think the Russian state tells the families of the fallen. Basically, they tell the families of the fallen, your son died on behalf of the motherland, period. No reparations? No, no reparations. Uh, they're not often, in many cases, they don't even tell them where they're buried. Uh, there's no acknowledgement of where they served or how they died. Uh, it, it's a disgrace to any professional military man or woman uh, because everybody who serves in the military knows that if, God forbid, they die in the service of their country, their country will at least tell their parents and loved ones where they died. They will give them a proper burial and so on. But it's typical of the classic Russian, and this goes back to the Tsar's, disregard for the human factor, to use Stalin's term, hmm. the, uh, the contempt they have for their own people, that this is the way they do that. And they also try to hide the fact that Russia is taking a substantial number of fatalities and wounded as well in these theaters of battle. Incredible. So let's talk about some of these alignments and partnerships that Russia has forged in this current era. The first I'd like to try and talk to you about is the Russian partnership with China. What is it? Most experts in the West, that is Europe, US, Canada, believe that there's a comprehensive strategic partnership between Russia and China. That's the term that both Moscow and Beijing use. I would say there's an alliance. Now, it's not an alliance in, in the sense that the NATO alliance is an alliance with binding clauses of action. That's not the case here, but it is an alliance. Both governments represent themselves in the same way as large-scale terrestrial neo-imperial forces and autocracies that are under threat from liberalism as such. So they share a common ideology as an They enemy. share a common ide ideology. They share a common mode of self-representation hmm. abroad. They have common enemy, the U.S., and the whole liberal ideological system. Mm -hmm. They see themselves being thwarted or that the United States is trying to thwart them in enlarging or aggrandizing their capabilities, power, and territory. And they have joined forces. And what's more, as Bismarck said, every alliance has a horse and a rider. Uh, in this alliance, China is the rider and Russia is the horse. 
This is one of the reasons why the Chinese do not proclaim an alliance and the Russians don't proclaim an alliance. But the fact of the matter is, in my view, and in the view of those people who think like I do, despite the fact that there are places where Russia and China do have differences, basically what China wants, China is able to get. And that tells me that they have ascendancy over Russia in this relationship. But it is an alliance. What is that? How, how, does the, how do the Chinese have primacy over Russia? Is it because they buy Russian gas? Like, what's the calling card? The Chinese have completely rebuilt their economy. The Russians haven't. Hmm. Chinese economic power dwarfs Russian economic power. Russia has become increasingly dependent on China for both economic and political support. The terms of trade between them are that Russia basically is sending China raw materials in return for Chinese exports, and that's a colonial pattern of trade. Interesting. And China is the, therefore, quote, the mother country in this yes. relationship. Second, we see this in terms of East Asian security, where the Russians are increasingly identifying with Chinese positions, whether it's in Korea, whether it's in Southeast Asia, on the South China Sea, and with regard to Japan. For example, with Japan, although the Japanese government for the last six years has tried valiantly to sign a peace treaty with Russia and try to move Russia into a more independent position away from China, it has completely failed. And the Russians are not going to make a deal with Japan because they know full well this would drive China up a wall and antagonize China. And the Russians increasingly depend on Chinese goodwill and support for the sustenance of the Putin regime. The same is true in Central Asia. China is now Central Asia's main economic and financial partner. Russia is the main military defender of Central Asia, or at least it says it is. But in fact, the Chinese are beginning to build military bases in and around Central Asia. And the Russians are unable to compete on this basis with China. What about South Asia? South Asia is a somewhat different matter. Um, India and Russia are still very close, but the Indians have opted now for a closer relation with the United States because the main strategic threat to India, I think, is seen from New Delhi as being China. And if that's your perception, then logic dictates movement towards, in, towards the United States. We see all this talk about an Indo-Pacific Asia, if you like. We talk about it at the Institute all the time. Right. Indo-Pacific means India is part of the Pacific. This is the first time in world history that anybody's ever talked that way, including Indian analysts and government officials. That also means that in some sense, India is competing with China for dominance or at least influence in the Indian Ocean, as well as perhaps in the Pacific. And you have Act East policy now by India rather than Correct. just look East. Correct. India is forging very close ties with Japan and South Korea and, and, and Southeast Asia, and Vietnam in particular. Although China and India have tried to improve relationships, I, I'm not sure how far that's going to go. But also, the Indo-Russian relationship is no longer what it was 20, 30 years ago. And I think the primary partner for Indian world affairs is the United States. Interesting. Let's turn a little bit then to, as we continue to unpack Russian alignments around the world, let's turn a little bit to the Middle East. What do you think happens when uh, Presidents Erdogan from Turkey and Putin from Russia sit down and crack open a cup of coffee? What do they do? 
Well, they don't crack open vodka because I stopped my, I stopped myself. <laughs> uh, and Turkish coffee is strong stuff. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I tried to merge the two. So. <laughs> the Russo-Turkish relationship is much more complex than it's portrayed as being. I doubt that the Turks have forgotten that Russia has been the historic enemy of Turkey. But there have been periods when Russia and Turkey had been friends, like the 1920s. Turkey depends on Russia for 60 to 70 percent of its gas. Turkey feels, with some justification, that the United States has not understood Turkish, Turkish sensitivity about the Kurdish problem. Now, I would argue personally, from my point of view, the Turks are excessively paranoid, if you like, about the Kurdish problem. But the issue, the way you resolve that issue is by dealing with the Turks instead of ignoring their concerns. Uh, the Trump administration actually just signed off on an agreement very quietly with Turkey about dealing with the Kurds in Syria. However, Turkey has issues with the European Union and the West and the United States, and it is attempting to straddle the line between friendship with Russia and excessive dependence on Russia. It is still a member of NATO. It has made no move to close the base in Sherlock. And what is required, uh, therefore, on our part, I think, is an attitude of engagement, tough-minded engagement. Uh, there's no problem with telling Mr. Erdogan exactly what we see as the problems and so forth, provided that it's also laced with understanding of where he's coming from and an effort to resolve outstanding issues. But it's going to be difficult as long as he is in charge of Turkey, given his nature, the nature of his political system and experience of the last 15 years. What about this adventure in Syria that Russia has embarked upon? Does that not place Russia in this cauldron of a relationship between Iran and Israel when it comes to what happens to Assad in Syria? Well, I don't know that it's an adventure, because when you say in world policy that somebody is following an adventurist foreign policy, it's a policy that's going to fail calamitously, as you know as well as I do. Uh, Syria has been a success for the Russians. They are now an, a major player in the middle across the entire Middle East, not just Syria, Israel, Iran. It has brought other problems, and this one is a major one. But they are attempting to bring about a situation whereby Assad stays in power in Syria, as both Moscow and Tehran want, but that Iran cannot use Assad's return to power as a pretext for establishing a military bridge all the way to the Mediterranean through Lebanon to Hezbollah, by which it can threaten Israel's vital interests. The Israelis have made it clear to Moscow that they will not stand for that, and they have the capability to destroy Iranian capabilities in Syria and Lebanon. And even if they take a, a hit for that, they've made that abundantly clear. They've also made it clear to Putin they have no quarrel with Assad. I think Israel would prefer that Assad rule over the other alternatives, that he is the least obnoxious to them uh, in a series of bad choices. Very bad choices. And they respect Russian interests. Russian trade with Israel is flourishing. They have not signed up to the sanctions. They do not want to destroy Russian weaponry and so forth in Syria. But if the Russians encourage Iran, they will happen. Putin got this message, and now he's calling for the Iranians to withdraw their troops from Syria because... Russia wants to win in Syria. They do not want to provoke a general conflagration across the Middle East, which would only bring the United States back into the Middle East in a big way, both politically and militarily, and where Israel would destroy Iranian capabilities in Syria, costing the Russians billions of dollars and giving the Russians nothing. When you look at Russia today, and thank you for this remarkable tour de force of Russia's relationships with various actors around the world, when you look at Russia today and you think of Vladimir Putin, um, 
Do you think that there is ever any hope of a democratic norm emerging in that country? You know, everything changes in world affairs. Very few people in our business predicted that the Soviet Union would fall apart without a shot. At some point in time, I think the burden of empire will be too great to sustain in Russia. It's already showing many signs of economic uncompetitiveness, severe domestic problems, and that's for the prognosis for the long term. So at some point, and I believe after Putin leaves the scene, his successor will have to reform the system if he, and I believe it will be a man, will be able to stay in power. But there's no sign that Putin's leaving anytime soon, and I would not base policy on the expectation of rapid transformation. And this is a problem the Russians themselves have to solve. Mr. Gorbachev did not transform the Soviet Union simply because the West put pressure on it, although that was a factor. It's because he and the people around him had come to the conclusion that they could not go on living this way any, any longer and that something had to change. Did his people feel that pressure too at that time? Yes, but the memoir literature is clear about that. Right. So, uh, you know, Reagan and the West's pressure certainly contributed to that, but that's not the main factor. And I, I don't want to slight the Western contribution, but uh, the, the weight of this was, was from their own internal perception that the system had reached an impasse within the Soviet Union, and they thought they could reform it and make it work. The problem was you can't make that system work. And autocratic patrimonialism, which is a fancy term in social science theory for what Russia is today, doesn't work in the long term. It invariably brings about economic stagnation and entropy, and we are already seeing that. It's interesting, though, that it has survived in Russia for over 100 years. Well, it survived, but at, at an enormous human and economic cost. Right cost of sustaining this imperial edifice is unbelievable. And it has achieved nothing for Russia. They are as far behind the West today as they were when Lenin came to power. Do you see Russians themselves appreciating that massive human cost that has basically preserved their system? Look, there are some people who do. Most people don't. Uh, but there's no way to gauge what Russian public opinion is because, unfortunately, there is an information monopoly by the government in Russia. One of the problems we have in the West is that we've not devised an information strategy that reaches out to the Russians and tells people the truth. Interesting. It's very no, difficult. There's no more radio for Europe. Education. Well, there is radio for Europe and VOA, but that's not enough. I mean, I work with VOA. We need something more. We need a new strategy using new technologies and new approaches, and we haven't done it. Interesting. And if you were going to try and give some insight as to what would be valuable use of Western resources and time to try and connect with ordinary Russians to empower them to think independently about their own country, what would that be? Well, I think you have to start using the new technologies that are out there, satellite communications, social media, and so on. Right. right. This is going to be a long-term operation. You shouldn't expect immediate payoffs, but it's something that needs to be done, and it will have the effect over time of affecting the way Russians understand the world they live in. Uh, listen, Professor Blank, we really appreciate your time here at the McDonald Laurie Institute. Thank you for taking some time to join us on what I like to call the National Security Nerd Fest podcast series that I get to run. <laughs> so I'm grateful to you. Uh, we look forward to your book on uh, the Arctic and international security to come out maybe this year or early next. We hope. Inshallah. Inshallah, <laughs> as it's been said. Uh, so thank you so very much for your time. Thank you.